Katie Thomas. And I'm Tony Stamp. And this is Pop Culture, the podcast exploring themes and iconic characters of popular culture and the context in which they came to be. This episode, you're taking the lead, Tony, on a subject that I've got to say is pretty foreign to me, video games. So start, please, by telling me why I should care. (laughs) Well, before we start, Melody, I'd kind of like to know what your experience, if any, is with video games. Some of my happiest childhood memories, randomly, are around video games. We didn't have a console ourselves, but I had a friend who, every time I went to their house, we would play King's Quest, and I think specifically King's Quest 4, which was like an adventure game where you had to, you know, puzzle together some clues. And and even now, when I hear the music for King's Quest 4, I get super goosebumpy. Like, it mm. was a real happy place for me. And we also used to play this hilarious horse racing game where you just run around and around a track going over jumps because we were both really into horses Mm. and even now like if somebody had that game and said can we play this game by the you know before they finish that sentence I would be playing that game (laughs) so there's some games that are really special to me and and I also I played Sonic and and um oh right okay so you're actually pretty seasoned Maybe I am. I think I was. My earliest memory of gaming is going to my dad's work. He worked at a hospital and he had one of those games that was just purely text-based. So it was like, you've just what? walked into a cave. Do you want to light a torch? And then you just type... And no picture. Type yes. Maybe some, <laughs> maybe some crude graphics. And then when I was a little bit older, I sort of hired consoles from video stores, but, but didn't own one until I was an adult, basically. And now I game all the time. I do sometimes, as an adult, consider hiring one for fun. But I wouldn't (laughs) want to bring one into my house because I think I would never see my children and maybe my husband again is what I suspect. It's definitely an issue. (laughs) So I guess the first thing to know about gaming is that the numbers are really huge. It's Mm. a huge part of the entertainment industry. But even though it is bigger business, dollar-wise, than movies and... Is it? Completely. And game Mm. sales leave music sales absolutely in the dust. It's still kind of seen as this sort of niche pursuit that maybe doesn't get the same amount of coverage. So Mm. let let me hit you with some figures. So Do it. Hit me. According to market researcher NewZoo, the gaming industry took about $121 billion in 2017 then in 2018, it rose 13% to reach $137 billion. Wow. So by comparison, the Hollywood film industry in 2017 made around $43 billion. So around half of that phenomenally large figure goes to mobile games, games yeah. that you play on your phone. And by 2021, the percentage of that will be around 60%. I just realised, as you said that, that I have three games on my phone that I really love playing as well. So there I think you I go. am a secret gamer. It's crept but into our lives. But they have to be beautiful. They have to be really beautiful and have beautiful music and those kinds of things. That's important to me now mm. as an old lady game <laughs> So according to the same company, there are around 2.2 billion gamers in the world. Again, they reckon by 2021, uh, it's going to approach 3 billion So these are big numbers, and games Mm. do sometimes prick the global consciousness. Uh, For example, you might remember in 2016, it seemed like everyone was playing Pokemon Go, where you had to go out into the real world and hunt Pokemon or something. So much so that it made an appearance in the American presidential election. I don't know who created Pokemon Go, but I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. I loved seeing people out there hunting Pokemon. It was so nerdy, but they were all outside under the sun. 
Exactly. <laughs> I think that was part of the appeal is that you could actually go outside and do it. Mm. Um, but then it just kind of finished. And this year, the gaming phenomenon that has infiltrated the, the remainder of the culture has to be Fortnite. Even if you're not a gamer yourself, I guarantee you've heard someone talk about it. Yep. And if you don't know what it is, it's an online multiplayer game. So so basically you compete against a bunch of other players and you run around shooting each other. Can I just say, what I know about Fortnite hmm. is minimal, but I can floss and have been known to to do that in front of children. Elaborate on that, please. Well, flossing is a dance move that, as far as I uh, know, originated... I don't know why there's dancing in Fortnite. Perhaps you could explain that to me. But there's a dancing component of Fortnite, apparently. Mm. And one of the dancers that got famous is flossing. I didn't know about this aspect of uh, Fortnite, but you're right, we are going to hear a little bit more about it. Good. So in Metro magazine, Leilani Momoisia, our workmate, wrote a column about the way that gaming had infiltrated her home due to the amount that her husband was playing. She wrote, a new way of life, of communicating, has taken over my daily life. Like most change, it seeped in slowly. A small concession here, a little compromise here. The metamorphosis is so gradual, it's only shocking when you stop and look back. Ooh, intense. Yeah, so I caught up with Leilani to see how it was going. It truly had at that point kind of taken over not just his life but my life too because mm. it had become a part of like our daily conversations. You know, I got a really good win today. <laughs> or, you know, I had a really good snipe. I sniped someone really well today. I'm like, cool, well done, babe. <laughs> good for you. So you talk about that in the article. You say new words and terms have been added to our daily vernacular. Readying up, minis, looting, mining for mats. Uh, if I want to ask how his day was, I might ask him if he got any dubs. Yeah, Sorry. like <laughs> like wins, you know, W. Oh, <laughs> right. I think he's gotten past that hardcore, this mm. is all I'm going to do, and, and is now like, okay, I actually do have to do other things in my life now, so has reined that back a bit. But it's still part of life you know <laughs> mm. so for people who have never seen the game before what do you think the appeal of it is why is it so addictive i think visually it's a really nice looking game so it's a shooter game but also you have to build in it so if someone shoots at you you build ramps to sort of protect yourself mm. from the shots <laughs> right so that's a really interesting part of the game i think i guess you could say it would definitely appeal to younger people and it's not so brutal it's not nearly as realistic and people get to choose their own clothes and they get to buy emotes and all that kind of stuff yeah what's a moat emote if you kill someone you might do a little dance like you might do a dab oh. or you might do the loser dance or whatever <laughs> um so you can, you have to get to a certain level before you can buy certain emotes and so that will show people that you're at a certain level if you like do stuff as well i didn't realize that drake played fortnite i learned this from your article yeah, so that's it's funny because I'd seen heaps of people on my timeline talking about Fortnite all the time, and I and it was only when he played it that I actually watched it. I watched the live stream with how many other thousands of people. It was himself, Travis Scott, an NFL player, and Ninja, who's like the most famous mm. streamer. And I watched it, and it was entertaining. Like it, you mm. know, I knew nothing about the game, but it still held my attention. 
it was hilarious because they were kind of not very good. You know, Drake went and hid in a bush and stuff. And like, it was just kind of like funny. Yeah. And it was entertaining to watch. So I've never played the game, but I can sit and watch like someone else play Fortnite. And that's, it's like watching TV for me or something. You huh. know? Listening to that just then mm. made me really glad that my significant other is a fisher person and that, you know, who likes to go out fishing and not a gamer. Why? I just feel like fishing vernacular has invaded our everyday conversation oh, a lot see. less. I see, right. <laughs> and, you know, when he goes off and disappears for half a day, he comes back with food. So that's good. So as we've said, Fortnite is huge. At the end of uh, 2018, Bloomberg estimated that around 200 million people play uh, the game worldwide. That was up from 125 million just six months prior. In preparation for this episode, we've talked a bit about Fortnite. And, you know, to give me an idea of how popular it is in New Zealand, you told me that the Telco Chorus data spiked to its highest ever use the day that Fortnite released a new update. Yes, it was newsworthy. It made the news. Oh, my gosh. And that player that Lani talked about, Ninja, is like the superstar of Fortnite, yeah? He's kind of emerged as that, yeah. He averages between fifty and 100,000 people watching him online when he's playing a game, and he makes around 350000 US dollars per month. Uh, we're going to go into how he makes all that a little bit later, but for now let's talk about our colleague Mackenzie Smith. Oh, I found I found this guy for you. You did. I was, you were I was working in Auckland, <laughs> yeah, at RNZ in Auckland, and just happened to overhear Lani talking to a young chap about his what career in professional gaming. I think. Yeah, exactly. He, Amazing. Mackenzie is in his early twenties now, and he is retired from a career in pro gaming. So I I did some research before actually talking to him. I found an article in the New Zealand Herald from 2016. That was about his retirement uh, from playing the game StarCraft professionally at the age of 19. Nice, um, he did a bit of stalking before you approached of him. Of course I, I like did. Yep, so so Mac had spent time <laughs> in San Francisco and later Switzerland in his teens, living in gaming houses that are kind of like training camps, playing the game what? 10 hours a day, competing in tournaments for prize money. And it's here that we should start using the term esports to describe this kind of competitive gaming. Anyway, I approached Mac in the office. He saw me coming. When I came up to you yesterday, we were out in the office and we hadn't met before and you looked slightly wary. And you said to me, when people approach me like this, I, I generally know what they want to talk to me about. And it's your history as a, a professional gamer. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's because it's, it's still a very novel and, and niche thing to be a, in this case, former pro gamer. At the time, I was really the only person who had gone overseas uh, to do this, just because New Zealand is so small and isolated. And, yeah, I mean, the fact that you have to go overseas in the first place to be able to make it work um, kind of reflects how difficult it, it, it can be to be a pro gamer here. I was never on a salary um, at all. Uh, my boarding was paid. They mm -hmm. paid for some flights and accommodation. There's very minimal living costs mm -hmm. because you're not paying rent and it's quite easy to earn enough to get by rent aside when you're just playing online tournaments. For gaming teams, they basically have to attract any sponsors. Mm -hmm. So they'll give a team a certain amount of money based on what they think that 
team can offer their brand mm. in terms of advertising. Generally, their slogans are thrown across the team's um, branding. Like any other sports. Yeah, 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 yeah. It also mentions in that article that I think you were in the top eight in the non-Korean world, which is a very specific thing to say. So These you... things need a lot of context, it's true. Yeah. Mm. So Korea is known as the mecca of esports. So StarCraft really was the originator of esports and it developed in Seoul largely in South mm. Korea. So you have you know a culture that is very much based on uh, at least for young boys gaming in um, PC banks or internet cafes. You had the best players made instant celebrities as famous as you know actors hmm. in the country. And so um, from that point on, South Korea has always been um, a huge esports hub, but also. Koreans generally play in their own domestic leagues. Mm. If they want to play in foreign tournaments and get foreign money, they have to make big moves, basically, and really commit to living overseas, which a lot of Koreans have done. Um, right. Yeah, it's kind of labelled easy money, um, but also it's <laughs> <laughs> but also it's a big it's a big commitment because you have to live away from your home and away from these team house conditions. Yeah, so Mac ended up living in one of these team houses in Switzerland with a bunch of other StarCraft players. And, you know, basically his existence revolved around gaming. Yeah, 10 plus hours a day, seven days a week. Mm. And your breaks are when you travel to tournaments. Mm. It's a really brutal regime. And, you know, you couldn't do that in, in physical in the physical sporting arena, obviously, because it's too demanding. But you're just at your mouse and keyboard so you can keep that up but it is mentally very draining there's not room for the I guess nourishment emotional and and physical that you really need to keep yourself happy and healthy I think just through my observations there's very high rates of depression and loneliness and social anxiety in esports mm. um, to a really horrifying degree because these are really young people who have isolated themselves from the rest of the world mm. and they train and compete in a game that rewards absolute commitment and there's really no room for anything else. And, th and that's absolutely what I found. And so it wasn't so much burnout as just being so crushed and intellectually stifled and forced away from home. And, you know, you get, you get to the point where your day and, and, and how your day goes is literally defined by how you perform at this game. My will to actually play the game, which I know I needed to do in order to perform, was just dropping away rapidly. Mm. And yeah, no, it was just a, a constant crushing feeling, basically. Definitely the, yeah, easily probably the darkest moments of my life. Oh my goodness, how 
grimace this? I gotta say, you're not really selling the whole gaming thing to me anymore, Tony. Well, this is an extreme case, you know, bear that in mind. (laughs) Anyway, yes, very, very grim. But Mac did point out to me, for him at least, there was a big upside. When you win in a tournament after, you know, training your ass off Mm. for the past few months and, you know, you beat someone really good, you win a lot of money, you place highly... There's no greater feeling. I honestly wouldn't be surprised if I um, go through the rest of my life without feeling the sheer emotional high that you experience in, 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 in these wins. I hope for his sake that he does experience a feeling like that feeling again and that he doesn't have to destroy his mental health to, to get there. So there's an online platform called Twitch where people Mm. can subscribe to watch other people play games. And those people playing games can end up doing quite well out of it and making some money. This is how Ninja makes all his Mm. money, our famous Fortnite player. Subscriptions to Twitch are five US dollars per month and he has tens of thousands of subscribers. This is one of the parts that I really don't understand, I think, about gaming culture is this whole economy that sprung up around watching people game. I just really don't get it. I talked to my cousins about it who are, you know, 13 and 15, and they kind of got through to me a little. They showed me some stuff which was, you know, it seemed to be a lot about the personalities of the people playing Mm -hmm. and them talking to people, and there was quite a bit of response. Like, is it true, I think, that people can send messages and then those messages will be read aloud or or responded to? I think I remember reading about a gamer who gives, like, dating advice while he's playing... That kind of thing. Yeah, Twitch is super interactive and there is a, a real community, as, as mm. we'll hear soon. So I wanted to talk to someone making a living from the platform in New Zealand, and that led me to someone called Laurie Pops. All right, so my name is Laurian Gugic, and I am a full-time streamer, also known as a content creator or influencer. Mm. I do play video games for a living, (laughs) so my week starts on Monday and I start at 9.30 and finish at 2.30 because my son's in daycare. So I try to live a somewhat normal, healthy schedule (laughs) around this job, whereas before pregnancy, I would stream basically every day. (laughs) So now it's a bit more relaxed and a bit more uh, balanced. I guess, like, explain to me what the appeal is of someone who, like, logs in and wants to watch you playing. Is is it because they want to watch someone who's really good at the game give it a go? That is definitely one reason. There's um, a sense of community to Twitch, which is uh, quite possibly what new newcomers to Twitch don't really know about um, mm. and outsiders as well such as yourself uh, the community aspect of twitch is huge mm. for example the first time i went on twitch i was looking for a game that i couldn't play myself and it was a pretty awesome game it was a zombie one so i went on twitch and i was looking up uh, people that were streaming it live and i found a channel that i really liked the person who was broadcasting and i thought he was doing a really good job i could just sit in his chat and 
talk to his viewers just like myself we can talk amongst ourselves while we watch this person play and right. so i made friends and we all bonded over this game mm. and that's where it starts with twitch uh for a lot of viewers okay well i'm fully on board now so there you okay. go <laughs> i don't know if it's i mean she did a really good job of explaining some of the appeal that i didn't quite understand it sounds like it's a bit of a chat room but with this added component and that works, like, you know, when I was young, I got in chat rooms and wanted to bond with people who love the same stuff as me. So I do get that part. And I also think partly I'm on board because she's like a mum and you can hear her baby in the background. And mm. I feel like she's busting some stereotypes there. So you really played to played that one, played that card well. I'm on board. Where do I sign up? You know, back when video games started coming out, I think they were marketed more to males anyway. And totally. I think at the time... Uh, they probably didn't know that it would cause such a disservice to women. Mm. But things are changing and the culture mm. around uh, women in video games is getting better. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm all for that. I'm promoting women in video games as much as I can. Yeah, because I've got to say, as little as I know about gaming, one of the things that I do know is from being on Twitter and seeing female gamers talking about not just having games that aren't made for them or not having their um, you know, gaming dollars respected by people who are making games, but also bullying and harassment within the gaming communities. So that's good to hear that maybe that's changing. I mean, I think it is slowly but surely. There's definitely been some dark days so it was good to hear Laurie talk about it in such a positive way. Hmm. The other thing that interests me about Laurie and people like her is that she's achieved success in, you know, what is essentially a media job while living completely outside the main centres. I don't have to live in Auckland. I don't have to live in Wellington. Hmm. I live anywhere that's got really good internet. Uh, Fibre is the best option, of course, hmm. and a good bandwidth, really. Good, um, good upload, good bandwidth. That's all you need. Good computer. Uh, most of my viewer base are actually from America. I've been to two Twitch cons. I got to meet a lot of my viewers and a lot of my subscribers, you know, people that watch and uh, contribute to my channel. Mm. You'd be surprised how starstruck they get. You know, I'm sitting here and I'm just this small town girl from Napier. You know, I have these people watching me online, but then you go to these events and you meet them and then... I almost feel like a, like I've got imposter syndrome <laughs> with right. the way that they react to seeing me sometimes. I've had people cry meeting oh, me wow. and shaking. Yeah, so you do get the um the celebrity feel and it's it's very <laughs> unique and um I I do um stay humble about it. Yeah. Um, I think that's the best way to be, but yeah, no, it's it's quite cool. <laughs> the, the, were you yeah. were you a, a game enthusiast from you know like as soon as you could be type thing? Uh, yeah, my dad uh, was a gamer oh. uh, before I was born, so <laughs> I've said this in <laughs> practically every interview I've like been in. I've said it's my dad. You know, he got yeah. me into it, and of course, my mum supported it as well. She wasn't heavy into video games, but she encouraged us, me and my sister. Mm. And um, no, we love video games. We love them to death. And I would tell them, you know, how many donations that I got in one night or uh, things like that. And um, they'd be like, oh, okay, you know, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> so can you break that down for me a little bit? Like how, how do you actually earn money doing this? You make money off your subscribers and they do that just because they wanted to. So they'd opt in five US dollars a month. Right. And so people do that and, you know, five US dollars a month times maybe 
700 people, you know, it starts to add up, especially mm. when you translate it into New Zealand dollars, it's quite nice. <laughs> On top of that, there's there's uh, ad revenue as well. So anyone that's viewing the channel, when ads come on, uh, Twitch just rolls ads uh, randomly. And then you've also got donations, which people opt in themselves. They just want to donate money to you because they think your content is worth it. They think it's quality. Right. So there's actually quite a few different ways you can earn money on Twitch. There's all these new income streams available to people and and I think the majority of people aren't aware. I mean, like you're even talking about earning American dollars, you know, like it's a whole new it's a whole new ball game. It is. It's definitely a millennial job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm 26, so I'm not old, but um there's a bunch of, you know, 16 year olds coming in and starting streaming now and you can only imagine what their channels are going to be like in (laughs) five or ten years time so i was fascinated by this idea that there's this industry that sprung up around the gaming world but I, I feel like it's still not getting talked about that much. And yeah. as your assignment this episode, you talked to someone who's working in the, the periphery of the industry, Luke Rowell, mm. who makes music as Disaster Radio and Eyeliner. What did you talk to him about? I talked to him about a project that he has just wrapped, which is he's one of two musicians making a soundtrack for a game, an iPhone game called Marbleoid, which is a what are they called, like track games? Or basically you hold your phone and roll mm. a marble along. Oh, uh, yeah, got it. The music he makes is eyeliner is, you know, under the Vaporwave umbrella, which you're about to hear us talk about and explain a little bit because it's very niche, but uh, there's a big audience who really loves it. Anything kind of purple and blue on the internet that references the 90s. Uh, rehash of late 80s, early 90s culture. You might think that you're listening to the soundtrack from some television commercial. Yeah. There's a bit of a sub-agreement that it's a critique of sort of capitalism. For me, it's got a lot of stuff to do with the uh, pre-internet culture. Like if you imagine being in the 90s and maybe your computer going to sleep and like some spinning thing appearing on the screen. Yeah. So did you, you got approached by a couple of game makers? Yeah, uh, these two guys in Hamburg in Germany called Superb. But their original idea, which is why I took the project on and what I think was so genius, is that they have five different art styles in the game. And as you're playing through the game, it can change art style on you instantly. It kind of crossfades from one visual look to another. And I think that's the, the genius of their approach is that they know that Vaporwave isn't one specific art style. So they've all got names, like there was Marble Skies, Windows 93, Wii Shop, like Nintendo Wii style, Hollow Punk, which is like a real purpley pink like color cycling thing, and then one called Classic Vaporwave. So it's like, they know that when you look at Vaporwave stuff, you're actually looking at a sort of a multitude of different things and kind of not, not one thing in particular, so. And I guess that opens you up for interesting musical choices as well because it's not just the one. This is now released. This game is now released. People can play it. It's called Marbleoid. Yeah, M-A-R-B-L-O-I-D. And it's, what are they called? Track games. Yeah, Marble Runner games. Marble Runner games. Yeah, Yeah, so you tilt your phone to try and get it along a track and down a hole and out through a hoop and all that kind of thing. Yeah. And you're collecting emoji. Yeah. 
and I have a feeling that this is a game that you want, and obviously you do as the person who's um, developed the music for it, but you want to kind of be wearing headphones and be fairly well immersed in it. Yeah. It feels like it could be quite a soothing game to play. Yep. I think your music probably does that as well. So, so as a musician coming to this project, what did you? How did you? Where did you start? Well, you have to have because the prescription was that these five different art styles that morph seamlessly. Then uh, I was like, well, it's got to be five different songs that morph seamlessly, more or less. So, there's a variable in the game called tension, which is how close you are to attaining another level. So the game tells the the audio middleware that the tension is increasing and I take that tension level and turn it into a situation where the the main drums drop out and then it's just replaced with shakers or hi-hats like the the band is waiting for something to happen and it's you're you're kind of coding in the tension release aspect I mean just just one aspect of it and then when they when they complete it does it just it goes back in that's great yeah you know this is my assignment from Tony video games Kind of haven't been a huge part of my life, mm. but I have some. We didn't have a television growing up. I was okay. kind of forced to make up my own games and use my imagination, yeah. I guess. But when I went to friends' houses, video games yeah. held such huge appeal. And there was one friend that had, like, I've got these. The memories that I have of King's Quest, which yeah. is, I don't know if you know. Yeah, you do know because you told yeah. me who made it. An yeah. amazing woman made it. Roberta made. Williams. King's Quest, this like random horse riding game, yep. this game in primary school when we first got computers where we had to locate a colossal squid and take a photo of it. Kraken on BBC Micro, yeah. Yeah, the you go down in the bathosphere and you've got to go down and then the Kraken goes do do do. And yep. I, my team was the first ones to oh, find Oh, okay, the, I found the Kraken a, too. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. That, Granny's Garden was a banger on that. Yeah. I don't know that one. Oh, you got to check out Granny's Garden. Okay, it's so weird. the feelings anyway. I get are intense. Yeah. And I went into, I looked up some of the King's Quest music and there's yeah. this little scene with a little like leprechaun dude playing a flute. Mm. And listening to that took like took me back more, almost more than the visual, I would say, yep. was the music of it. So it's important. It's an important part of the game yep. is the music. And years from now, people may hear your music and it'll give them the same feeling that I'm yep. describing. Yep. And that I'm sure you have too. Totally. I have that more than any other. I, I was into video game music before I was into music music. I would make um, mixtapes of stuff from games using the TV, like plug the headphone out of the TV into the into a ghetto blaster and make mixtapes. Um, from video game music. From, from Commodore 64 stuff. The form and the kind of the construction of video game music is the initial reason why I write music at all. So we started this episode talking about Fortnite, but Fortnite isn't the only online multiplayer game. Another big player is Player Unknown's Battlegrounds or PUBG, which is pretty similar to Fortnite, but it's a little bit more grown up. So there's, you know, blood and stuff and the fan base tends to be a little bit older and more intense. Is that all over? You know, that's the same thing where you can sit and watch someone play, and but but there's like beer and swearing. Yeah, exactly the same. Uh, you know, Fortnite is just a bit more family friendly, I suppose. Okay. And learning about PUBG led me to some guys who have made their own business making gaming content for YouTube. So these guys don't even necessarily play online; they just make oh. comedy sketches about gaming. <laughs> they started with StarCraft, which was the game that Mackenzie played. And now they've moved on to PUBG and they've been successful enough that the core trio has been able to quit their day jobs to focus on this. Oy, oy, oy. 
just making sketches about online games. They've even netted some NZ on air funding. They've been able to pay for a camera crew and a, you know sound gear and so on. Okay. They are called Viva La Dirt. Because of China, and we don't realise this, PUBG has far more people play it than play Fortnite. Mm. But the reason Fortnite is so is coming to the cultural consciousness of the entire world recently is because very young people play it so like 10 to 13 14 year old people play it which means mm. their parents know about it mm. which oh, means yeah. they're talking about it on shows like ellen and the news right. and True. All those yeah. and so it's not just gamers who know about it it's normal people they don't necessarily play it but normal people know about it. it's scary how kids do that it's taken over their lives like when i'm taking my dog for a walk around hobsonville point you just like and there's like a school they can go past that like you just hear them like oh, we're playing for and they're just pretending to shoot each other with sticks or whatever. Oh, wow. And these are, this, is, this is a primary school. It's crazy. How is that different to what these guys are doing? They've just got a camera on them. <laughs> well, to answer that question and to clarify for our listeners what these guys actually do, I got them to break down one of their PUBG sketches. Okay. So a little bit of lingo in here uh, for you, Melody, and <laughs> listeners. Uh, they're okay. going to refer to an NPC that's a non-player character, so like an AI within the game. Does that make sense? The character the computer's controlling? Exactly that. Okay. Here we go. We knew the gag was my character's an NPC who wants to get an adventurer to help save his wife and child from his burning house. Adventurer, I need your help. What do you need? My house is on fire with my wife and child inside. Shit, uh, come on, let's go, yeah. Good luck, adventurer. So that's, the, that's all we knew was the setup. And we didn't really even know what the gag was through the episode until the day we got there. Mm-hmm. And so Rowan and I just kind of stood in front of one of the buildings and just started acting it out to each other just to try and find the joke. Sorry, just uh, just one, are you, are you gonna come and help? And we found out that while we were there and while we were acting it out to each other that the funniest bit is the fact that, oh, it would be funny if my character can only say a couple of things. There's buckets behind the house near the pond. So I, I don't, don't want to be rude. I just I know it's a stressful situation. I just want to check that you're gonna you're gonna come help save your family. There's buckets behind the house near the pond. I'm more than willing to help, but they are your family. Good luck, adventurer. So and that he's being mm. a bit of it's almost like he's a dick that he's not going to go help save his wife and burning child in the house. <laughs> right. You're gonna just kind of stand there. Good luck, adventurer. And watch me put out the fire that your family's in. Does anyone else in the world do this? Not a lot of, but it's something that is on YouTube, is making skits about video games. Okay. But, but we, we're probably the only ones in New Zealand, aren't we? We're the only ones in New Zealand, and we're the only ones that seem to con- have a consistency to them. Like, there are a lot of channels that do, oh, like, a PUBG thing, and then they'll move on to a Fortnite thing, and then they'll mm. move on to a Sea of Thieves thing, or whatever the, the next game is mm. that seems to be making waves. Or, mm. or they kind of just focus on pop culture in general yeah like they'll go Mm. they'll do a PUBG thing and then it's like a Superman thing the next week or whatever yeah so much like Laurie Pops the Viva La Dirt guys are much more successful outside New Zealand than they are here and they recently visited a thing called the PGI tournament which was this huge PUBG event in Berlin 
New Zealand's not one of our big demographics for our YouTube channel, so out and about New Zealand, no one knows who we are, which is kind of great. But going to the PGI tournament, there's a lot of gamers, so the percentage of people knowing who we are was significantly higher. So walking through the main concourse of the arena and people like staring at you going, oh, you know, running up for a photo or an autograph or something was weird yeah kind of. or like going to restaurants just within close to where our hotel or the event was like people were just always like you could see them taking photos of us <laughs> or like you know some would get the confidence to walk over and say hey but um yeah it's surreal our, our first real experience of going oh wow we are actually super famous to the right people yeah was last year at the auckland armageddon expo mm -hmm. yeah. so normally we walk around no one knows who we are and then you go to armageddon expo where it is condensed your, it's your condensed kind of fan base mm. and suddenly almost everyone is kind of like second looking like they're taking a second glance at you and then you've got this line that, that you can't see the end of of people lining up for your autograph mm. and it's just like shaking when they shaking with like, like and, and it was the shaking. first experience of like wow we 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 are really famous <laughs> to the right people so i love hearing about these guys making entertainment for you know what i thought was a pretty niche audience mm. where it maybe feels like most of new zealand has never heard of them um, but as the guys reminded me it is a very huge niche so one thing i've heard about what i now know to call esports is that esports games like this played online are predicted to maybe outshine or at least exist alongside actual sports in terms of popularity and viewership and that kind of thing yeah, it's something that I actually heard more and more. So as I listen to this, I'm reacting in this weird way where I kind of, I'm reacting almost against it and I'm trying to figure out why that is. And I don't like to be one of those people that's like, oh, the youth today, like their heads and their screens, not out in the real world. But I'm not, if I am initially going there, I'm not the only one doing that, am I? Like, there's a lot of people who th are thinking similar things or have concerns about this. Yes, yeah, so in fact, recently on RNZ's The Panel, political scientist and author Nicholas Tampio said this. Uh, in America right now, uh, maybe in New Zealand too, there's a, a video game called Fortnite, which is a very violent first-person video game where you're dropped in a virtual world and the goal is to kill as many people as you can and not get killed. And you know, it's incredible. There's an article in Education Week saying that this is actually a learning opportunity. And I say, oh my gosh, what we've lost our bearings if we think that this is better than teaching kids how to play sports and how to move their bodies. So I guess to kind of react against your concerns, Melody, and Nicholas's mm. concerns, I wanted to try and shine a light on some of the positives of gaming. There are obvious examples, like the games my six-year-old nephew plays on his dad's phone that are specifically designed to build neural pathways in his brain by focusing on problem solving. Yep. But then I discovered something that really intrigued me. It was a cover story from a few years ago in the British Medical Journal that asked, can games cure depression? And that article led me to our very own University of Auckland. My name is Caroline Stasiak. I am a, a senior research fellow and a senior lecturer here at the University of Auckland, Department of Psychological Medicine. I'm a, essentially a research psychologist. The idea actually came from a GP who said she was seeing a lot of young people um, with, with symptoms of depression coming to get some help, but being a, a GP, often GPs don't really have the skills or in order for them to make a referral to a clinical service they have to a young person actually has to be in quite a lot of distress and so depression is something that exists on a continuum so from sort of mild to moderate to like real severe 
difficulties. And unfortunately, our services at the moment, the way they fund it, they fund it to support young people at the higher end of the difficulties. So when a young person shows up at a GP practice, often the thing that GPs can do is prescribe medication or provide sort of supportive counselling. But this GP was interested in something a bit more specific to give some specific evidence-based skills and strategies to the young people and she said why don't you guys you know why don't you think about creating something that looks like a sims game but it actually has got therapeutic component to it it's got therapeutic skills or useful skills that young people can use to help them manage how they feel was kind of a challenge for my PhD to try and take uh, a gamified approach a very sort of playful approach to create something that young people would find appealing, engaging and fun or at least not horribly boring and sort of tedious to to, to do. So for Carolina's PhD under the supervision of Professor Sally Merry, they split 180 test subjects into two groups. So one group got care from their guidance counsellors, therapists and so on, and the other half played an early version of the game they'd designed, which is called Sparks. Gamification is designed to sort of motivate you to use it more and we were very keen to do it in a kind of a fantasy setting. Again, a little bit because we're dealing with mental health and we didn't want it to be too confronting for a young person so you take on the avatar so you don't necessarily have to be yourself in the game um, and you go and explore these sort of magical lands and there's a story that the land used to be balanced once but then you know something happened in the past that has kind of overwhelmed this world it's become gloomy dark negative you need to you are the hero you need to restore the balance and you'd have to do that by kind of finding these gloomy negative automatic thoughts you have to fight them we know young people again when it comes to gaming like kind of fighting kind of overcoming challenges and then you get to also collect sparks the smart positive active realistic x-factor thoughts these are the positive thoughts the more balanced helpful thoughts and that's very much the premise of cognitive behavioral therapy is this sort of learning to to think in a more balanced, more helpful way and being able to kind of defeat or challenge those pesky negative thoughts. So to actually design the game practically, the team turned to Metia Interactive, led by Maru Niho Niho. Maru's Māori, and so that was an important sort of part of our approach was to sort of make sure that there was a sort of a bicultural sort of framework in terms of how the game looked and felt to young Māori people. Um, We do our research according to those principles and very much in partnership so that was also you know having having Māori sort of people often talk about like working with people that have the skin in the game so to speak you know so she sort of was able to kind of support that process as well probably um, differently to someone who's an imported Pākehā. It's essentially one of the world's first, what we call sort of nationally implemented e-therapy tools for young people in particular. It's designed to appeal to teenagers, but we know we have some um, adults and family and whānau members accessing it as well, just to probably learn more about what it is. So we've had our statistics suggested almost 20,000 people have accessed it since 2014. We have had uh, a successful, I guess, commercialization of it in Japan. So a, a small Japanese company has taken Sparks and translated it into a Japanese and have actually changed a few features of it to make it more sort of anime-like because that sort of really suits the Japanese um, aesthetic. 
Um, and they are using it with adults. They have, they're going for the sort of 30 to 50-year-old sort of men who are probably stuck in a corporate job and feeling, you know, stressed and so on. And um, it's fascinating to sort of think about something that we develop here in New Zealand with a sort of a strong nod, nod towards uh, Maori culture that's been taken and kind of implemented in Japanese work environment for stressed up Japanese men. <laughs> And Carolina told me that the next goal for the team was to make the game more playable on phones so that hopefully more people could get help, uh, you know, kids could play it on the school bus and things like that. So we both had a, a little go on Sparks at home. Mm. Melody, I understand you particularly enjoyed creating your character in the well, game. Well, that's the only part I've managed to do so far. <laughs> I had trouble downloading it to my phone because I have no space. If I'd had mm. it there, I think I would have gotten further through. And also there's you know, there's parts at the beginning where it's um, trying to get a gauge on your mental health. And mm. I've had to lie and say that I'm feeling quite down at the moment Um just so that I can play the game. But obviously I, I understand why that's there. And it does, it looks cool. Like I love the I, the premise where he explains at the beginning, you know, that um, we're going to play some games and, and you're going to do these kind of puzzles and then afterwards I'm going to talk to you about how you can apply those to your life. And mm. if after a few weeks you're not feeling better, then here's where you can get help elsewhere. Yeah, I really liked designing the character and I, I liked the fact that it didn't necessarily have to be you. Mm. Uh, you know, there's a wide variety of choices there and uh, they encourage you to use a different name than your own. And mm. I was also just impressed by what a legitimate game it felt like. Mm. You know, it, it was really fun to go along and um, I explored a cave and, and I uh, shot some angry gnats with my, my sort of staff because they were spreading bad feelings in the realm. Microaggressions. Um, <laughs> microaggressions, Yeah. <laughs> So did, actually, I genuinely enjoyed it. And did it talk to you? Did you have the conversation part afterwards where they talked to you about um, what those gnats represent in your in your life? I didn't quite get Oh, because that's that what I'm really that. curious about. They're like, here's some puzzles and then you deal with them and then they're like, now this is how it applies to your real life, which I'm quite gotcha. interested in. So if you want to play at home, head to sparks, that's S-P-A-R-X dot org dot N-Z and see for yourself. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture. I'm Melody Thomas. I'm Tony Stamp. And you can subscribe to the podcast via Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or any number of other podcast providers. And if you like what we do, leave a review. Melody, you are taking the lead next time. What are we yes. going to be hearing about? We're going to be talking about taste, about what constitutes good taste and bad taste and who gets to decide which is which. It's Yeah, it's a pretty interesting one. Cool. Can't wait. Should we end with you telling me your guiltiest of guilty pleasures? To speak broadly, I really like uh, trashy horror movies from the 80s. Oh, yeah. Even though uh, they really have no redeeming qualities other than they're entertaining. Okay. Sometimes our co-worker, Yadin Asaw from Music 101, will bring up the fact that as a 16-year-old, isolated in the United States, away from my friends and any markers of good taste, I enjoyed Nickelback. <laughs> See you next time. <laughs>